Hi, I'm Jess and I'm the oldest. Oi, I'm the oldest. I'm Shtee, I'm the dad and this is actually my podcast. And I'm Tommy, I'm the youngest. Welcome to the podcast. At the heart of hearts, we're all very creative. I've had a very interesting life. You've travelled all over the world. I remember being... Oh, interesting. This is not how I remember the story story. Pints are not a good measure for filling Jacobs as fuel. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are. It's another recording day for the Podclarks. This time it is episode 12. And I am excited, 12, 12, 12, 12. thrilled and joyfully... Um, excited to be here <laughs> and that's right i'm so excited i said it twice how are you feeling toms i would say i am excited to be this excited about the excitement of this podcast episode oh my goodness golly gracious me Stephen. i wish i was excited oh yeah no eeyore oh. pipe down we're not you're not part of this episode Okay. No special <laughs> um, guests invited. Well, I take that as an introduction. I guess it was. Thank you. And I just think I probably don't say ever how pleased I am to be here myself, rabbiting on about my life and uh, sharing my experiences. You know, the background to episodes one to 11, for those who haven't been listening, is that I was just a sorry boy uh, who went off, did a forestry degree, went off volunteering in Africa and traipsed back overland with my friend and got into a few adventures along the way. But even though I nearly fell off the Victoria Falls and <laughs> survived a bushfire in the middle of the night, uh, this is actually when my life starts to get a bit more interesting from now on. <laughs> that is the most, um, uh, you know, ridiculous Hype. statement I've ever heard yeah. about. I love everything about it. Even though I was just a sorry boy who did a degree in forestry and went <laughs> off to Africa, even about four words in, you're already di- on a different path to most people. <laughs> anyway, well, I look forward excitement. to what you have to tell us. But I just want to downplay the expectations on this episode because this is like a linkage episode, really. Although it's a massively important link. You know, they always say in a chain there's the weakest link. Goodbye, that kind of thing. But there's also a strongest link in a chain. Seriously, there is. The one that never breaks, however hard you Mm. pull it. The one that's left after all the others are broken. And this podcast is that strong linkage chain. (laughs) Episode 12. You heard it here first. It is the strongest link. It will not be said goodbye to. It will be here after all the others crumble into dust. Yeah, I, I, I would say. say that my expectations were high. And then you said, don't get your expectations high. So they went low. Yeah. And then I suddenly found out this was the strongest link. And now they are through the rooftop. <laughs> oh, I dear. am intrigued. What so have you got that, to tell us? Um, well, uh, it, it all hangs around one five letter word, really, which is mutts, if that's five letters. So, <laughs> But picture this. So I've come back from Africa. Uh, I've spent two years teaching in the middle of nowhere and uh, not sure where on earth I'm going to go. What is life all about? What am I going to do? Which direction am I going to head? And um, people who knew me at that time tell me I was um, very sort of unsettled. And my sister Rosemary, who's going to be 70 next week, um, tells me that I used to flick through the channels on the television, not st- stopping for more than five seconds on, on any one channel. But I don't really believe that because I don't think we had remote controls in those days. So I, 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 <laughs> You'd have to be getting up and... Yeah, down I, by the I, I don't TV. know what that story is about. But it, anyway, it's a kind of hint of how disorientated I was. And I, I remember wandering around supermarkets and thinking, why? 
have you got 15 types of toothpaste and 10 types of flour? What on earth do you need all of that for? And um, I found it quite difficult to settle, if the truth be known. So I punted around for a bit. I think I got a sort of part-time job with the old employer, forestry employer, that I'd worked for before I went off uh, volunteering. Um, but then another opportunity came up, which was, I think we've talked about this on the podcast, the, the seller coffee bar. End of last episode, we were talking about um, sending messages up and down through the dumb waiter. Well, mm. that is where this strong link starts to emerge, because in that period of coming back from Africa and before I knew what I was going to do, that fell in love. How about that? Aww. Completely Aww. crazy. I really thought I heard you say Mutt fell in love and I was like, wait, what? No, I don't <laughs> know about that. You'd have to ask her. But I mean, I, all I know is uh, there was that very, very excitable, sparky feeling um, anytime I got anywhere near your mother, my wife, Sarah Clark, also AKA Mutt. And... Um, <laughs> I was like a blooming 16-year-old, really. Hopeless. Absolutely hopeless. Because <laughs> I kind of wanted to, to develop a friendship, but I was just too scared. And there was this sort of particular time when we were all sparking, and I think we might have said this before, but not on the podcast, I think. Um, when I was thinking, oh, I know Sarah's free this evening, and I'm free, and there's nothing going on. Really, the thing to do would be to ring her up and ask her out. Could I do that? I even went, and I mean, this is so idiotic to admit this now I even went as far as the telephone and tried to pick it up and couldn't that's how stupidly how stupidly out of sorts I was and at that point the phone rang would you believe and guess who it was no it was Mutz it was Mutz and she I think would say if she was contributing to this podcast um, that she thought when is it ever going to ring I'm just going to have to do it myself (laughs) <laughs> anyway she rang up and uh, off we went and we went out for a night and it was a went to a pizza restaurant in Guildford um, and the thing that we often remember about that was we were given a table that was right next door to the swing door that went I think to the loos anyway it, was a, it wasn't a very sort of romantic kind of setting <laughs> for the pizza restaurant but it was the start of great things and I think if I'm right we went out on a little outing um <laughs> you know you know how to win a girl don't you I think I said would you like to come and see some of my forestry planting <laughs> I was doing for this employer now I mean this is as I say with all of my anecdotes most of them aren't true anymore they're kind of my memory of what happened but I, something along the lines we went out to look at this forestry plantation and I think it was on that trip that um that I said uh said shall we see each other a bit more or something it won't lead to marriage or anything don't worry (laughs) (laughs) so I mean I was literally so inept at everything to do with developing this relationship and um uh fortunately I'm uh, just so worried about being married (laughs) I don't know I can't explain myself fortunately she could see past it all so anyway we were having a great time together and but I still didn't know where I was going or what I was going to do or how we would ever have a life together really um I do remember that we were always driving around in Morris Miners of course and um I think uh we've talked about the little trafficator things the indicators that flapped up on the side of the car instead of yeah. flashing lights they had these little orange bars that flapped up and wouldn't lit up and there would be one on the left hand side if you're turning left and one on the right hand side if you're turning right and 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 I think I might have said this at 
I wired mine so you you could put them both up at the same time, just as a bit of a joke, really. <laughs> and um, one time I had to give a lift home from a church youth group. I had to. I'd offered to give them to another girl or a woman, oh. I should say. And uh, we were going away from the house where Sarah was living, and I, I just wanted to sh- to send a message that this is. I'm just giving a lift. It's nothing to do with with anything more than that and it's not going to lead to marriage or anything that's how stupid it was <laughs> anyway as I drove off I I flapped the two indicators up twice just to sort of wave goodbye to to Mutz as a sort of sig- signal that I was thinking about her and not the person I was giving a lift to <laughs> oh, okay. and uh, and it turns out that that is code for this is not leading to marriage <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's, which you can never be sure of so picture that come back from my trip um, fallen in love, not sure what we're doing. And I'm going to roll back a little bit now and talk just for a short while about my parents, uh, John and Laura Clark, who, with whom I was staying at that time in, their, in the family home. And a bit like I talked about my grandparents or my grandfathers in previous podcasts, I thought it was worth just highlighting uh, these two because they were very special people. There's no doubt about it. Um, they were by no, by no means perfect, but they were very special. And one of the things that I inherited from them was the idea that there's always two ways of looking at something. Um, because they had both been brought up in sort of strong Christian backgrounds. Uh, my father, I think I might have said, was a, brought up in a strict Baptist uh, denomination, which was really strict. And my mother was an Anglican. And normally those two would be quite incompatible but somehow they managed to make it all work and um and keep their parents on board and got married and but all the time as we were growing up we I, we were aware that there were different ways of looking at things because one of the one of the key differences between baptists and anglicans is that um anglicans as you probably remember um baptize babies um christen babies and and, and baptize them into the church very early on Whereas the Baptists say, well, that's ridiculous because they, they can't believe anything, so it doesn't mean anything. So we'll baptise people who are older than that and, and who can actually make a decision on their own, on their own basis. And believe it or not, that, that one thing is a huge issue um, between people who disagree about it. But we grew up knowing that you could have perfectly reasonable, lovable, gorgeous super people who, who held different views on, 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 on something like that. And I think that was one of their... They gave gave me many things, but that was one of the things that I really I really inherited from them. And both of them had an impish sense of humour um, at times, and um, in fact, I I know that my my father, bearing in mind he grew up in a strict background, um, he and his brother used to play all sorts of practical jokes when they were children, and. Um, so my grandfather had set up this business as a as a, a gentleman's outfit or a tailor really selling gentlemen's clothes. So in the house there was a of uh, my grandfather's house there was um, a, a tailor's dummy and uh, and one time they had a, a visiting female missionary in the house and my father and his brother put this dummy in her bed 
and um, put her, a, a, a hat on it and made it look like <laughs> there was a, a man lying in her bed when she went up to bed. Um, <laughs> which, I mean, even, even now, that would be quite shocking, really. Yeah. Sort of yeah, back then, probably really full on. And then the other thing they did was they, they, they went out, and because they were, they were small um, children, they used this dummy to put a coat around. I mean, I can't believe this now, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's definitely what I was told. And they put a coat around it and put it on their shoulders so they could go off after they were supposed to be in bed and buy sweets at the sweet shop. And, um, I, I mean, I don't know how that ever worked. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Tell the story about Gran and her nickname that you gave her. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. well, Gran, I, a.k.a. my mother, um, Laura, Laura, was uh, prone to laughing uncontrollably. <laughs> A bit like Muttley in the in the Wacky Races, if you know that thing, sort of very very squeaky back of the throat noise, but uncontrollable <laughs> laughing when she got when she was tickled by something, uh, mm. she just used to laugh uh, uncontrollably, and for some reason we used to call that a hag, uh, you know, like a, a I don't know, it's, I don't know what what we were thinking, like a sort of like old witches kind of laugh, or something, something like, like that. I mean, that's very unfair because it was a great sound and and. You know, you, it, was, it could only contribute positivity to any group, but we called it a hag. And um, and so that sort of transformed a little bit over time into calling her hag, um, which is a very much a term of affection. We all loved it mm. a bit. Of course. And then one time she said, look, she said, I'd rather you call me Fred than hag, because that just really isn't. Is is not not respectful enough. So after that, she was Fred for Fred. Fred, Fred, Fred. <laughs> um, I love that. She was a teacher. Um, I mean, she had a very smart uh, brain in her head, really. Uh, but because of the war, she had never been able to go to college or university, and she went straight into teaching. Um, and in fact, she was a lifelong educator, always wanting to pass on information to people. And I've talked before about the fact that she used to write to me in Africa and correct my letters and um and I mean the, I've told it before on this podcast but it's worth telling again because it's it's teaches people who are listening something so if you have trouble with the word principal because I used to write back to them and say uh, the principal of the college is very nice and I used to spell it p-r-a-n-c-p-l-e and I got it back sent back with it corrected to p-r-a-n-c P-A-L. And she said, just try to remember, he's a pal of yours. The principal is a pal of yours. That's how you spell principal <laughs> in that. Mm. And the other type of principal is the sort of the standard, the thing that, that, that you live your Which life Which is by. a plet of yours. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. The trouble comes if your principal is not a pal, in which case mm. then are you riddled with, he's not a pal, so maybe that's the other one. <laughs> Well, no, wow. truthfully, what she wrote in her letter was, can you remember whether he is or isn't a pal of yours? So it covered that oh, whole thing. Oh, And that was She's 50 years ago. Than... <laughs> that was 50 years ago. So, um, and of course, as I said, my father was a businessman, worked for his father, my grandfather, selling clothes to people. Um, and because I think my grandfather was quite tight with money, they were not paid very much. So when we were growing up, money was not, um, there wasn't a lot of money around. But by the time, at the end of their lives, they had too much money, really. And I thought, I, I remember always noting that and thinking, well, that's, that's so crazy that um, when you most need money to bring up a family, you haven't got it. And yet later on, 
you've got too much. And so that and one sort of outcome of that was it made me particularly and us as a family much more active in trying to borrow money when we didn't have very much because I always thought you could use that to pay to generate money to pay people back and um so we borrowed from all all sorts of people over the years um banks even sometimes but mostly or quite often privately from different people and by the same token we've we've lent to people as well sort of informally and I love all of that because you sort of beat the system when you when you avoid these scurrilous financial institutions <laughs> so anyway um mum and dad living in the Godalming family home there I am and just to mention uh briefly because it's important in the future stories is that this is when that family moved in that I've mentioned before in a previous episode of the podcast around the corner um Reverend Patrick Ash and his wife and their seven children and mm. Pat Ash had started this group called Project Vietnam Orphans and uh in 1975 that you'd have know all about the Vietnam War and how America was involved in this crazy conflict right across the other side of the world really um and America and other countries were worried that communism was going to sweep across Asia and become a global sort of power and they wanted to stop that so they thought I mean this is highly simplified and probably mostly wrong but they thought a way of doing that was to bomb the people who were communists and try and sort of discourage it. Um, in actual fact, what happened in the end was that, that the reverse happened. The sort of capitalist way of living um, swept across Asia the other way from, from west to east. And neither of those are probably a great thing. But anyway, in the 1970s, America was fighting Vietnam and they were losing. After all those years, they were losing. Um, so they pulled out. Just like that. Uh, and, and as the country, they say fell, but got transferred to the communist Viet Cong, um, all the Americans pulled out and it left a whole lot of mess on the ground because there wasn't any, it was a bit like Afghanistan recently, actually. Um, it happened very quickly and there wasn't much sort of preparation and there were lots of loose ends. And one of those loose ends was large, quite large numbers of children who were either unaccompanied or orphaned who were being cared for in various orphanages and institutions that, that were supported by the Americans and other, other countries. Um, and I'm telling you all of that because Reverend Pat Ash and his wife saw this, the plight of some of these young children in Vietnam and, and how they were threatened with, with really no future. Um, and they tried, they set out with an objective of helping just one child. Um, and in fact, over the years, they've helped tens of thousands but at this particular time there was a need to get to deal with um, hundreds of children who had no parents and who were facing an uncertain future and the Daily Mail chartered a flight um, to fly to Saigon as it then was Ho Chi Minh now um, and evacuate children and Reverend Patrick Ash and various others from his organisation were involved in organising all of that. Now, this was a huge news story because this plane took off. It was one of the last flights to leave Saigon. Um, it had 90 children on board. Um, a lot of them were babies that were strung in cots swinging between the, between the seats. 
some of them were two or three years old. Um, but it was very controversial, extremely controversial, and remains controversial to this day. Um, because those children were taken from Vietnam and placed into uh, families in, in Britain. Um, and it was really interesting because over the years since then, government policy on adoption um, has, has sort of gone in various different directions, up and down, left and right. Um, and there's a school of thought, which Reverend Ash subscribed to, um, which is that what's best for a child is a loving family whatever their background, whatever their ethnicity, whatever their language background, the family unit of love is the most important thing. And, of course, at different other times, um, adoption policy is much more focused on matching ethnicities with the adoptive family from the child. I mean, that wasn't possible in this particular um, instance. Um, But the result of this was that the whole, it was the front page news story um, for about three or four days, I suppose. All of the news bulletins on television, on the radio, featured Pat Ash and this flight from Vietnam. And um, he asked my parents if they would help and be involved, um, which they did. They joined the committee and my mother became the treasurer. And I remember that every post bought a, a sack full of letters to the house round the corner, absolutely packed with um, people either bitterly complaining about this um, des- terrible thing of bringing children out of their um, culture and heritage and bringing them to Britain, or people saying what a wonderful thing it was to take the risk and go in under the, under the you know, under war, or a war situation with great danger, and sending money lots of checks so um huge amount of money came in in every post and (laughs) and pat was on the the tv news several times and i learned then how sort of malicious the tv can be because we we knew him and we knew the story and we 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 could see that the bbc for example as and other other uh, stations are available uh they would ask him a question and he would answer it and ask another question and answer it and ask another question. And then they would edit it to look as if he was answering... A, they'd edit the answers he gave to a different question. So it looked like he was avoiding it or, um, or, or not answering the question directly or properly. And, I mean, ever yeah. since, you know, you've thought, gosh, what can we ever believe? Because, I mean, that was the BBC all those years ago. It's, fake news was alive and well even then. That sounds pretty shocking. It's all very shocking. I'm telling you all of that because um, it meant that that whole kind of charity effort uh, was became part of our family. You know, we were very much connected to it. And in fact, it morphed through several different identities. But later on, I worked for that group for 15, for 15 years. Um, but why it's important in this Strongest Link podcast episode... <laughs> is that um, here am I falling in love, not sure where I'm going to go, what I'm going to do. And I got a letter from this particular organisation saying that the work had, you know, it had closed down in Vietnam, we knew that. It had moved into Thailand and the Philippines and they had a, an idea of sending a bunch of people to work in the Philippines for a few weeks. And this was to, to a, a children's home there not to bring children out, but to support children in the country where they were. 
and would I like to go and be part of what's called a work scheme? Well, I'd never heard of a work scheme. I've never heard of it since, actually. But um, mm-hmm. it was a, a, a bunch of very sort of un, unlikely people, of which I was one, who I think 23 of us probably um, all got on a flight out to Manila and went to this children's home and built built stuff. So we built um, sanitation block toilets for them. We built a piggery unit and we built some fish ponds, um, which looking back on it was incredibly ambitious. But what was important to me about that was how it was a very diverse group of people. And of course, we were all slightly unusual. Otherwise, we wouldn't have gone on that kind of a, a trip anyway. Um, but crucially for me, it brought me into contact with the very first person I ever knew who was outwardly gay. And I got to know Tony very well during that period. And he really kind of um, opened out to me about his life. And this is, when is this? This is uh, 1984. So it's quite a long time ago. And I'd say that um, gay rights issues, um, LGBTQ issues have come a long way since then. Um, but for me, it was a real kind of positive eye-opener to find somebody um, who I could really identify with and relate to and discuss things with and appreciate and see some of, of the what I would describe as the torment that he was experiencing trying to be who he was in a world that didn't want him to be like that um and uh so anyway that was it was a very formative experience for me in all sorts of ways but that that was one of the ways um and uh, before you, before you met him do you had did you sort of have preconceptions about what a gay person might be like very or was very very no absolutely i mean what i'd say is they were completely and totally uninformed and um, no idea at all even what it was really if the truth be known Mm -hmm. and I was what was I 24 something like that you know it's just didn't but I mean partly because of my background I suppose we'd grown up in quite a sort of I don't know if shelter is the right word but quite a sort of small you know we mixed with people like us I suppose um and I suppose partly because of the background. But no, I didn't. I didn't have any uh, experience or knowledge. I guess it was something that nobody ever talked about. No, no, it wasn't. Which seems like inconceivable now to... to. I mean, I guess I guess you just think how many people must have been hiding, hiding a part of themselves because you look at the world today and, and, you know, it's not that that's changed. It's just hopefully people feel much more comfortable to who they are yeah I mean I totally and, and if I think back about Tony now I think and of course this was um right at the beginning of of the AIDS um pandemic mm. really it was a pandemic wasn't it so mm. it was right at the beginning of that which which complicated everything but um now I think back to Tony I think how brave he was really um because he 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 did share all of that with me and and eventually with with the whole group um, but I, I learned a lot from him and I'll always be grateful for that um, yeah do you still keep in touch with him? no we lost touch a long time ago um, mm. actually 
Uh, in fact, there's only one one of those people I'm still in contact with now. But I think we were an, an unnatural group. You know, it it wasn't likely that we would stay in contact really because we were mm. all very much going came from different directions. And it was my first experience, really, of how groups of people don't just get on with each other. You, you have to work at it. Um, and there was a leader who was, who was hopeless, really hopeless at, at leading. <laughs> um, I mean, he, he, he would do anything rather than confront anybody. And um, there was lots of need to, there was a lot of need to confront people because everybody, 23 people who hadn't been properly trained really, hadn't gone, you know, he had all sorts of ideas. So... I mean, that was another role that I ended up doing a little bit by accident was was making the group of people or helping the group of people work better together. And I I did it kind of instinctively um, and not really having any particular aim in view, but just just did what I do kind of thing. And I think that was how I ended up uh, enjoying the whole chemistry of groups of people over the the following sort of twenty thirty years, really, where I was responsible for groups who were working in quite hot spots, places which were not easy to work in, and knowing that you know that doesn't just happen. Now, I, I mean, it sounds like I'm you know the some great leader. I don't mean to put it like that, really. I was just sort of saying that some people are naturally better at that than others. Uh, I think you can learn it. But mostly it's kind of, um, uh, well, I, I, I always say it's about seeing other people's viewpoint as more important than your own, starting from that, from that standing point, which is, which is counter to our normal kind of instinct. Because you think, I've rationalised all of this, therefore that's my worldview, therefore that's the, the right way of looking at it. But of course it's a very limited view uh, that, that we as individuals have. And... Um, and that whole thing about somebody else's experience um, will give them a different aspect. Like my mum and dad had different views, different ideas about things. Um, so anyway, that was a it was kind of a baptism of fire, if you like. It was a, a lot of, of of tough things to do, but but we did it and we had a great time. So that was a great experience. And after the six weeks was up, um, in the middle of that period. Uh, can't quite remember how this happened but the idea came out for mutts to come out as a holiday we'd been going out about six months seven months something like that i think um and uh the thought was she would come out for a couple of weeks to to the philippines which she did and podcast episode nine ten eleven somewhere in there is the story of that um <laughs> her, her arriving on christmas day but uh very much as soon as we as we uh met up we went down to a little tropical island um she and i had both realized that this was either going to go this was either going to lead to marriage or it wasn't despite all your protestations <laughs> <laughs> well within within a few days of her arriving in in the philippines we were engaged um and it was on a tropical island nearly new year's eve absolutely beautiful surroundings um I can't really remember the situation, but somehow I proposed and she was uh, clear to accept straight away, which is great. <laughs> and, Did you uh, um, go down on one knee? Do you remember? 
Oh, well, that's why I say I can't remember the context, actually. Well, but I feel as if it was in on the beach rather than on one knee kind of thing. So... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to we'll have to wheel Mutz in for a, a different view of that at some point. But um, so then the people we're staying with, he was a Filipino pastor, and he was, they were all very excited about this and wanted to marry us there and then. But um, Mutz's twin sister, who had been engaged to another chap called Steve, strangely, for a while, and they were getting married the following summer, and we didn't feel we could really. Um, Pippin at the post so uh but they did want to to help us get an engagement ring and uh, so we went out looking for this uh in the shops out there but i think as we talked before there was a big american influence in the um philippines and the uh jewelry was rather bigger than our sort of taste <laughs> great spangly diamond yeah great spangly rocks so we didn't buy a ring, um, but we went off on a tour around the north. Some of the most beautiful sort of scenery that you could ever imagine. Terraced rice fields, um, all sorts of interesting experiences. And uh, because we'd come out on separate flights, we came home on separate flights. So as it turned out, I had to fly home two or three days before Mutz did. And uh, that was on uh, Thai Airways, which... Uh, transited in Bangkok so I was on this flight and the the flight got into Bangkok at about I don't know I'm going to say three in the morning it was the middle of the night anyway and usually it was normal stopover time was about an hour but well not not only were we allowed off we were forced off we were told to get off the plane so we got off the plane and I was wandering around the international transit lounge at Bangkok half asleep, bleary-eyed, and saw there was a jeweller's shop um, in the in the lounge. So I wandered in, which was great excitement for the, um, the three uh, shop assistants who were there. Um, and it wasn't quite like this, but it was a bit like I, I got ushered in and the door got locked behind me because uh-huh. uh, I was looking at, at rings and um, I saw one that I absolutely... I hadn't ever seen anything like it before. And... Since then, I've seen this setting quite a lot, but at the time it was it was it was very intriguing. It was a a small sapphire with four held with four little tiny diamonds in in a in a kind of clutch of four um, uh, on a ring, and I I just made the mistake of looking at it and thinking, oh, that looks rather <laughs> nice, and they were saying, right, okay, Ooh, sorry about that audio, and they said, <laughs> right, right, they said. Um, how, you know, let's wrap it up. You know, you obviously like it. And I was saying, well, not having any idea of, of Mutz's taste, really, other than that neither of us like big spangly rocks. So uh, this this um, this ring was, was priced at $200. So anyway, they said, I said, I haven't got $200. So they said, well, how much have you got? And I, I had some sterling pounds left over from when I'd left England. I'd got some Filipino peso from when I'd been out on the work scheme I'd got some US dollars travellers no I got some travellers checks which don't exist anymore and um, I got some US dollars which didn't belong to me they were from somebody else who I was going to take back who I was taking back to give to somebody in England and when it was all totaled up and converted into into the same currency it came out to $90 instead of 200 so 
they all look very crestfallen. And they said, haven't you got anything else? Turn out your pockets. You must have a, something else somewhere. <laughs> but I mean, I, I mean, I, I didn't. And um, by this time, they were calling my flight. They were sort of saying, passengers for uh, London Heathrow called gate number four. Please go straight away. And they were sort of saying, come on, you must have some more. And I was saying, no, I, no, no, I haven't. And I can, I mean, as I'm telling you this, I can really picture that, that little shock, <laughs> even though it's all those years ago. And they're saying, last call for flight to London Heathrow. I said, look, I've got to go. And so anyway, I, I went to the door and somebody came to, to sort of let me out. And then as I got to the door, the person at the back of the counter said, oh, OK, you can have it for $90, you see. So, oh, and then there was all hell broke loose because travellers' checks have to be <clears throat> signed there and then in the presence of thing. They have to match to the passports and the serial numbers have to be recorded down and copied out and oh, I don't yikes. know. And, and they were going, I mean, I, I like to think they were saying final passenger, remaining passenger. I'm not sure that's <laughs> true. But Clark, will you in, please get over here now? In my head. Stop it, buying rings. <laughs> it, I mean, that's, that's what it was like in my head and I was frantically signing travellers' checks. They were counting out the dollars, bum, 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 stamp, 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 took the travellers' checks, gave me the ring in a box, in a bag, off I flew, ran up the, um, the gangplank, whatever they call it, onto the aircraft, uh, the door shut behind me, sat in my seat, out of breath, red-faced, hot as anything, sweating, you know, four in the morning, just a nightmare from exactly start to finish. Exactly what you need. <laughs> yeah. But then I thought... I wonder what they've given me because I didn't. I mean, I hadn't even looked at what they <laughs> oh, put no. in the box, and I was thinking, thinking, I wonder if there's actually anything in the box. Anyway, long story short, or short story short, actually, it was it was a <laughs> or short story it, long even. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> it was a um, it was the ring I had chosen, and I really mm. really liked it. Um, and of course, I got back home with this ring and I'd got to wait several days um before I could um I could hand it over and uh my father was at the airport to meet me and he could he could smell something was up and well and that's right you hadn't told anyone well we'd written postcards from Bangkok saying guess what we've got engaged we've written to all the important people and um but they hadn't arrived so my father could smell Hmm. something when I said did you get the postcard and anyway he dragged it out of me that we were engaged. And I knew this was a catastrophe because being in business in the town, he was like the sort of town crier, really. He he couldn't bear... He loved chatting to people. He loved sharing good news stories. So I knew this was going to go like wildfire. And I also knew that would could quite easily reach Mutz's parents, um, So who'd also had a postcard, which also hadn't arrived. So anyway, I, I rang them up and made an appointment to go and see them the following night. And I was absolutely, it was a bit like that, waiting for the phone to ring to be asked out, you know, all those times mm. before. Anyway, I sat, I can remember, I sat in a wing-backed armchair, the ones that you know, you'll know from Granny's house, uh, Tommy, down in the living room. Sat in that living room there. And uh, both of them were sitting in front of me. And I, I said that... Um, we'd written postcards to tell them that we got engaged in the Philippines and I was blurting it out like an idiot, really. And um, I can't remember much about that whole thing except that uh, Mutz's father said, we're very pleased. And those words words rang in my head because, uh, I I mean, I didn't have any idea really what sort of idea they'd got of me or anything, really. Um, Mm. So then a few days later, Mutz appeared 
and uh, at the airport I presented her with a ring and I think the apocryphal tale which I believe to be true is that she was so surprised she said is it plastic (laughs) 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 but unfortunately that uh, that design um, suited her tastes as well and I mean somewhere along the on the along the way it it got lost and we think it might have got hoovered up somewhere but so that's it doesn't exist on Mutz's finger anymore but there is a replacement but it was a great story because uh, mm. I didn't know if I bought a ring was a good ring da, da, da. and I would I mean I would say if that if that is a ring that um that you liked and Mutz liked and I, I guess money w- was worth maybe more then than it is now but still 90 pounds for a wedding ring seems or engagement ring even seems like a very good deal people pay huge amounts of money don't they for mm. rings Yes, I mean, we weren't really in that market, but we did have it valued when we when we got back and found that it was worth the $200, not the $90. So, yeah. so it was a good yeah, buy in good. that sense. Mm. Um, but, uh, but then that really is my linkage episode because the strongest link leads on to all the other stories that are coming soon. I don't know what mm. you make of it all. Mm. And how glad we are for the strongest link. <laughs> Honestly, so glad. <laughs> I I can I can uh, already hazard a guess as to what this episode might be called. The strongest link. <laughs> you are the strongest link. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine that as an engagement? You are the strongest link. Hello. 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 <laughs> it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit mechanical to be acceptable, really. Probably wouldn't recommend it. I mean, we can tell um, 20-year-old Stephen that he can calm down because it all works out okay. <laughs> it all works out okay in the end. That's such a funny idea. You telling the 20-year-old Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> like, 20-year-old Stephen. That, Excuse that me, Stephen, calm down. Everything will be okay. <laughs> That's very, it's very back to the future, isn't it? But it I'm is. so much older than you were at that time. Yeah. 50%, more than. Indeed, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed, or whatever. It's been a while since we mentioned that Tommy was born in 1992, by the way. It is, yeah. Which <laughs> so does mean that I'm coming up there. to 50% more than 20 years old. <laughs> exactly. For those who are good at maths. I want to know if I'm ever going to be double your age, or have I been once already? That's my question. I'm talking to you, Jess. You, you've missed your, missed your boat, haven't how, you? How, uh, Unlike no, that time no, you no, were no. in. I think we're, no, we're going to get closer, What are you now? We? What are you now? Me, I'm, I'm 32, so I think... 33, 63, 34, 64. No, it's not going to work. You've missed it. It was 30, 31 and 62, 62. wasn't it? Oh, we've missed it. Yeah, yeah no, last year. Well, we didn't miss it. We just didn't notice it. <laughs> <laughs> so hang on, Tommy, there's still hope for you. Me, me and Mutz. There's, excuse me, there's plenty of hope for all of us. <laughs> um, but specifically, yeah. Specifically the phenomena where you are half the age half of your somebody parent. somebody else's age. Um, hey, Tommy. Hey, I have. You have only been half of my age. Very you will, early on you, in our lives. you will, yeah. What? <laughs> you will never be half my age. Well, exactly. Well, exactly. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. No, I think me and mum, mum and I, next year, will no, no. year after next, because I'll be. I think when 31. you're thirty-two. When I'm thirty-one, that will be sixty-two. I think. 
Oh, I don't know. No, anyway, this really doesn't matter. You're absolutely incorrect. You're absolutely incorrect. Your face is absolutely incorrect. No, she said it. She said it. Well, friends, what a strong linkage episode that was. Yeah. Oh, can I just uh, say, I'd like to do a bit of advertising because <laughs> launching at the same time as this episode is an experimental daily TikTok micro anecdote. So check it out on at the podclarks because um, nobody knows what it's going to be like yet because it hasn't Least started. All you. But it's going to be launched. <laughs> it's going to be launched at the same time as this podcast. Podcast. Well, excellent. An experimental micro anecdote. That sounds interesting. I know, I'll that give was, you that. Yeah, I'm excited. Sign up to at the podclarks wherever you want. We're not in Blockbuster, but we are everywhere else. On all your social medias. We, we're, not, we're not hugely active on Twitter. So what I would say, if there's anyone listening to this who really fancies themselves as like, you know, a Twitter-savvy sort of person, then come on board our team. We can't pay much. In fact, we can't pay anything, but you'll be rewarded with uh, good stories yeah. and good times. We can pay peanuts. I definitely can pay peanuts. Well, you might I be s- able to. Too much no, admin involved. You have to pay tax on sending food around the country. Oh, this is okay. Countries, yeah. Yeah, multiple. Look at us. We're so. Oh yeah. Oh, next episode we'll be in three different countries. Depends where I am. I might be (laughs) in the same country as somebody else. (laughs) It depends where I am as well. Then. Anyway, let this advert for somebody to retweet our tweets not go unnoticed because honestly, I don't think I've tweeted since about June last year. Oh, retweet as in not retweet on Twitter, but retweet as in get our Twitter tweeting again. Exactly, exactly. Re hyphen tweet. Yeah. We need you to like. Re- we need you to re hyphen tweet our us. tweets. Very <laughs> <laughs> uh, mind the average age other... of our listeners. I think most of them have logged off by now. Probably. Do our listeners have an average age, or is there? Oh yes, yes. How will we ever find that out? I can probably find out actually. On... Maybe it's half the age of their parent. <laughs> The average age of all of our listeners is half their parents' age. <laughs> the most complicated way of finding our ages. That is a very interesting demographic. It messes with I'm my head sure all of this. I'm not sure how to target them. But I think I need to go have a cup of tea. Sounds like a good plan. Go calm well, down. It's goodbye for me. It's goodbye for me. And as for me, it's goodbye. Goodbye.